now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. I hope you all enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at Ultraman Zero, The Revenge of Belial, with very special guest Derek W. Crab from the Fan Holes podcast. Very cool guy and a very cool episode. Today we are taking a look at two finales, uh, so to speak. We have Godzilla vs. Destoroya from 1995, the final film in the Heisei series of Godzilla. And then we also take a look at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 24, which is the final issue of that series. So things coming to an end a little bit here on, uh, on our Destruction Directive today. Uh, up first, though, a little bit of thank you, thank yous. Big thanks to Darren and Ruth Sutherland of the Rad Podcasting Network, which you can find at radadventures.podbean.com, who sent me a little while ago a wonderful print of Godzilla by a friend of theirs. The enclosed note reads, Our friend Warren Montgomery is a writer and artist who founded Will Lil Comics. When we saw this new print at his table, we immediately thought of you in joy. It's a wonderful uh, pen and ink picture of Godzilla. I will try to take a picture of it and put it up on the Facebook group or on Twitter so that y'all can can see it. Ruth and Darren are two wonderful people and two great podcasters. I had the pleasure of meeting them this past summer at Heroes Con, and I really like their shows. Please go check out their network of rather adventurous podcasts, including book uh, shows such as Warlord World, Xenozonic Xenotales, and Trekker Talk, and um, they have a detective show. Lots of good adventure shows on their podcasting network. Also needed to send a big thank you, thank you to Ron Sadowski, nominally of the Dinner for Geeks podcast. And all-around good dude and fan. Ron sent me a huge stack of Dynamo Joe comics from First Comics. Now, I'm not familiar with Dynamo Joe, but these look intriguing. A science fiction slash mecha series about giant piloted battlesuits and the crew which mans one particular suit. Now, I've never seen this series before in the back issue bins, so I'm very eager to start reading them. And there's a good chance you might be hearing about them here on the show. So thank you very much, Ron. In other news, Godzilla the Planet Eater, which is the third anime of the uh, and Toho anime Godzilla series, is now live on Netflix worldwide. This completes the announced trilogy from Toho. The, no word on what might be coming next from them for Godzilla. This is the last of the things they've announced as we're running up to King of the Monsters, which is being released uh, later on here in 2019. I'm hoping to begin coverage of these films sometime this year. I know that's really vague, but if I put it out there, then I have to at least do something, uh, at least with, with some of the series. So look forward to that. And in Godzilla King of the Monsters news, Jack's Pacific has begun to reveal their toys for the King of the Monsters toy line. Now we have a 12-inch Godzilla figure. We have the giant size 
Godzilla, which is some sources are saying 24 inch uh, tall, but I have seen on the actual packaging, it says more than 20 inches tall. So I'm not sure exactly how tall that is. It looks a little bit smaller than the previous large size Godzilla that we got uh, back in uh, 2014. We also get the monster matchups, which are two packs of three and a half inch tall monsters. Uh, the three sets are Godzilla versus Mothra, Godzilla versus Rodan, and Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. That makes sense. We also get the monster packs, which are standard six-inch figures, and there's uh, four of them, obviously, one for each of the four monsters. And most uh, strangely, we have the Godzilla Electronic Roleplay Mask. Now, uh, those of you out there may remember the Chewbacca Electronic Roleplay Mask, or perhaps the Velociraptor or Tyrannosaurus Role Electronic Roleplay Mask from Jurassic World. This is similar to that. It's a mask that I'm assuming a child, I don't know, maybe would fit an adult, can wear. And uh, as they, they roar, the mouth moves and it makes Godzilla's roaring sound. So uh, look, f I'm sure that will become a silly internet video soon enough. Now, no word on when these will be available in stores, but keep your eyes peeled. Um, I just mostly Walmart and Target now with Toys R Us gone will probably be your best bet. And of course, online dealers usually will carry this stuff. Hat tip to toyark.com for being the first one to break this news. Uh, that's all the news I have. If you have any news that I uh, think fits here on Earth Destruction Directive, please go ahead and email it in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we will get it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with Godzilla versus Destoroya right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned, mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are what there is so it many with pouches? All the pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla vs. Destoroya was released on December 9th, 1995 in Japan. The film made its way officially over to the U.S. on video in 1999 by Columbia TriStar Home Video, and like most of the Heisei films, never theatrically released in the United States. Our writer is Kazuki Omori, who previously wrote the other Heisei films, Godzilla vs. Biolante, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, and Godzilla vs. Mothra. Also, he directed uh, Godzilla vs. Biolante and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, so Omori is a name that crops up quite a lot in the Heisei films. The special effects are Koichi Kawakita, who worked on all the Heisei Toho monster films, both the Godzilla series and the Mothra series. Music is by Akira Ifukube, 
Now, Ufi Kube returned to the series with this film after not scoring Space Godzilla. He really didn't like the concept of the film, so he uh, did not want to work on it. Uh, this is the final film that Ufi Kube scored before he passed away. Our director is Takeo Okawara, who previously had directed Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1993, and would go on to direct Godzilla 2000 and Yamato Takeru, which is a retelling of the Japanese um, uh, origin myth. Uh, that version best known for having the dragon Orochi, who looks a lot like King Ghidorah. And our producers were Shogo Tomiyama and Tomoyuki Tanaka. Miki Segusa of the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasure Center, UNGCC, travels to Birth Island to check on Godzilla and its adopted child, but finds the entire island destroyed. Godzilla then appears in Hong Kong, covered in glowing lava-like rashes, and goes on a rampage. The JSDF hires college student Kenichi Yamane, the grandson of Dr. Kyohei Yamane, to work at the center and attempt to unravel the mystery of Godzilla's condition. The young Yamane suspects that Godzilla's heart, which acts as a nuclear reactor, is undergoing uncontrollable nuclear fission as a result of a uranium deposit revealed by the volcanic eruption which destroyed Birth Island. This will lead to an atomic explosion with enough power to ignite Earth's atmosphere and reduce the planet's surface to ash. The JSDF deploys a flying combat vehicle outfitted with anti-nuclear cold weapons, dubbed the Super X-3, in an effort to reverse Godzilla's self-destruction. Meanwhile, Dr. Kensaku Ijuin is working with micro-oxygen, which has tremendous potential for good, but could also be turned into a weapon. Reporter Yukari Yamane, Kenichi's sister, takes an interest in this, as does her aunt, Emiko Yamane, who reveals that Dr. Ijuin's research parallels that of Dr. Sawazawa's oxygen destroyer, which was used against the original Godzilla back in 1954. While Dr. Ejuin has no interest in creating an oxygen destroyer, his research reveals pre-Cambrian organisms which had been lying dormant in Tokyo Bay after being mutated by the oxygen destroyer. The microbial creatures quickly grow to about 10 feet tall and are aggressive and powerful. After several deadly skirmishes with the JSDF, the creatures, dubbed Destoroya, evolved beyond the military's capabilities. Due to his encounter with the Super X-3, Godzilla will not explode, but as his internal temperatures continue to rise, he will instead suffer a body meltdown which could potentially destroy the planet in a China Syndrome-style reaction. Mickey is instructed to telepathically lure Godzilla Jr. to Tokyo, hoping that Godzilla will follow and be killed by Destoroya. Jr. arrives and fights Destoroya, who is seemingly defeated after being blown into a building. Godzilla arrives at Haneda Airport, where he witnesses the now fully mature Destoroya return and kill Jr. Godzilla tries to revive Jr., but fails, accelerating the meltdown through his rage. Destoroya reappears, and Godzilla seriously injures the monster in the ensuing battle. Destoroya tries to retreat, but the JSDF shoots it down with a number of freeze weapons, and it dies upon touching the ground. As the King of the Monsters melts away to nothing, the JSDF is unable to prevent the massive nuclear fallout which will render Tokyo uninhabitable. Suddenly, the radiation levels plummet and a familiar roar is heard, and everyone sees that Godzilla Jr., having absorbed the energy from his father's death, has not only regenerated, but has grown into the new Godzilla. Godzilla vs. Destoroya is a very well-regarded and very popular film in the series, and I've seen it many times, so it was a lot of fun to watch it with a more critical eye here. Uh, for doing it here on the show. 
Um, a lot of people have strong opinions about it, so let, let's get right into the notes. Now, a combination of elements led to Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. The box office for the series had declined fairly steadily from 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra, which was the most successful Heisei entry. And Toho had licensed Godzilla to TriStar for the film that would become Godzilla 1998. It made sense for Toho to put their series on hiatus for a bit, to build up domestic interest once again, and to let the proposed trilogy of American films play out, bringing in cash via the licensing uh, agreements for those films. Toho would continue to make tokusatsu in the interim in the form of the three Heisei Mothra films, which were lower budgeted and primarily aimed at children. Initial story development for the film began with the concept of Godzilla fighting a ghost version of the original 1954, who would possess Junior. This was eventually abandoned. The popular theory is because of Godzilla already fighting doppelgangers in the form of Biolanti, Mechagodzilla, and Space Godzilla in the previous Heisei installments. The direction changed to bringing back the Oxygen Destroyer, calling back to the original film. Now, the nerd in me has always been bothered by the fact that Godzilla vs. Destoroyah came out in 1995, the 41st anniversary of Gojira, instead of 1994, which would have been the 40th anniversary. But as I said, this decision was made for several reasons, none of which were evidently symmetry to please Daikaiju Otaku. Now, while this film did receive strong reviews and is highly regarded, it seems that Toho's instincts were on point. Though Destoroyah did sell more tickets than the previous year's Space Godzilla, it still made less money than its predecessors. Now, regarding the name Destoroyah, in Japanese, his name is pronounced phonetically, and in the dub, he is called Destroyer. So, if you listen to the Japanese, when they say Destoroyah, if you listen to the dub, they, the international dub, they say Destroyer. I suspect, but I'm not really sure, that the English spelling of Destoroya, where he has the extra O and the Y-A-H, is for copyright purposes, and the monster's name was always intended to be Destroyer. I Fair warning, I may use both pronunciations as we go through the notes here. Now, getting into some specifics. Our film opens up at Birth Island, which we'd previously seen in Space Godzilla. That's where the Space Godzilla comes and attacks Godzilla and puts Baby in the, in the crystal cage. But in the dub, it is called Bass Island. Birth Island makes a lot more sense, so I'm not sure why the dub makes this choice. In any event, most people refer to this as Birth Island, no matter what the dub says. And again, I refer to it as Birth Island. Uh, we shift to Hong Kong, and this is the first appearance of a Toho monster in Hong Kong. Although Mothra actually attacks Peking and destroys all monsters, and I want to say that's the only other time that they appear in any type of, uh, any part of China. Now, this is our first look at Burning Godzilla, and it is a doozy, with the red glowing bits all over his chest, stomach, and thighs, and the bright red bloodshot eyes as well. It's easy to see why this look was so immediately popular and remains so to this day. It's extremely striking. You know, Godzilla's an imposing enough figure as well, but the contrast between the almost dark charcoal green sort of shade of his skin and the bright glowing red-orange really makes it stand out. Now, some nice touches. Godzilla's beam is always the red spiral beam in this film. And in previous films, this was his high-energy style attack, so that makes sense from a narrative standpoint. Also, there's a constant cloud of steam and smoke pouring off of him, showing just how much heat is producing. In this scene in Hong Kong, as he's walking through the harbor, the harbor is appears to be boiling around him from the steam that's coming off of him. The title card is also kind of a throwback. It starts with go the, the characters for Gojira in white on a black background. This is a direct reference to the title card from 1954. 
Destroyer's name uh, is made up of little bubbles, kind of like the Oxygen Destroyer. So I like that as well. Very neat. And on the dub, they do the typical thing where they put new titles over it, but you can still see it in the background, so you don't lose out on that. Now, the characters of Kenichi and Yukari are the son and daughter of Dr. Yamane's adopted son, who was Shinkichi from Godzilla 1954. Now, for those of you who may not remember, Shinkichi was the boy from Odo Island whose family was killed when Godzilla first landed there, and then you see him with the other main characters for the rest of the film. I like this, as it ties Kenichi and Yukari to Dr. Yamane, but it doesn't have to reveal if Emiko ever married Ogata after Dr. Sarazawa's death. I, it, there's no reference to Ogata in this film, and um, so I like to think that it never happened. We soon, after we're introduced to Kenichi and Yukari, we catch up with Emiko, who appears to be living alone in her father's house, which gives us the opportunity for flashbacks of Dr. Serizawa going back with archival footage from 1954. I like the idea that after Serizawa's sacrifice, uh, Emiko could not bring herself to marry Ogata. Very dramatic. Now, on their TV interview, Yukari asked Dr. Ijuin if micro-oxygen could be a weapon, a line of thinking one expects in a Godzilla film. Or, really, a Japanese science fiction film in general. Now, later, Dr. Ajuin says, We can't allow sentimentalism to interfere with the growth of scientific knowledge. Which, again, that's a line one expects in this sort of film. Ajuin never moves off of this position, despite the appearance of Destoroya, because he is a scientist, that's with a capital S, in a Japanese science fiction film. So, scientific truth is a moral good. You know, that science is amoral in, in, uh, most Eastern science fiction films, and it's it's the negative application of science that leads to bad results. Now, we learn that Godzilla has too much nuclear fission going on inside of him, and he will explode. This leads us to uh, a visualization of a hypothetical scenario, as we see Godzilla at the Diet building where he goes boom. Now, Godzilla at the Diet, again, can only be a reference to the destruction of the Diet in 1954, one of my favorite scenes from the original film. The hypothetical scenario of Doom also reminds me of a similar technique used repeatedly in the back half of the Doomsday film Prophecies of Nostradamus, which we covered a long time ago uh, in a in a guide many years ago, but used a similar technique of breaking from the narrative to show a terrible disaster that could happen as a hypothetical. Now, as an aside, several times throughout the film, we see police cars painted in the very distinct Tokyo police color pattern. Now, this is of special note to Japanese transforming robot fans, as it really looks like Prowl or Police Robo or Hands Cuff is on the scene, which would make for an interesting kind of, uh, you know, um, unofficial crossover. Maybe if Prowl rolled in there or Machine, you know, uh, Police Robo for Machine Robo. I uh, just throw that out there because I know we got some Transformers and Machine Robo slash Gobot fans out there, and I'm one of them, so there you go. Now, Yukari mentions that the tunnel being dug in Tokyo Bay, which is where they find all these pre-Cambrian um, organisms that were mutated by the Astrium Destroyer, she mentions offhandedly it's the grave of Godzilla, which is a nice use of literally one line of dialogue to foreshadow the development of the Destoroya, because we find out about this tunnel being dug before we find out about Dr. Jewin examining these, these you know, dormant pre-Cambrian organisms. So her simply saying this is the grave of Godzilla already sets that setting in our head. Now, as Godzilla moves around, the UNGCC orders no more attacks on Godzilla as it would be akin to setting a match to a tinderbox. Now, from a narrative standpoint, I rather like this conundrum. Godzilla has the potential to cause lots of damage, 
more so than normal because of the potential of him exploding and the fact that you have to assume that he's giving off a fair amount of radiation at this point more than normal. But you can't take any action against him because you could pre you know, precipitate that disaster. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. And it, I really like that. So that always struck me as an interesting uh, development and kind of one, it's like our hands are literally tied here. We can't stop him because if we try to stop him, we're going to make it worse. Now, from here, we shift to the uh, scene at the Tokyo Aquarium, where our night watchman sees the fish dissolved inside the tank from the inside. It's a striking, very eerie visual. Now, the use of fish to, to demonstrate this once again immediately calls back to Godzilla 54, where Dr. Zera had the test tank that he shows Emiko the results of the oxygen destroyer in, with all the fish uh, being dissolved and leaving only their bones behind. Now, this scene leads into the small-scale destroyers battling the JSDF special forces. Now, the, the small destroyers, they've got, actually all the destroyers, have red chitinous hides. They've got wide heads that are longer than they are tall, with teeth on the side of their mouth, mandibles sort of like the Predator, if you're familiar with those films. And they scuttle along like crabs on uh, eight legs. It's the first thought I always had with these. It's just that the design of Destroya specifically wanted to avoid bipedalism for this stage. Famously, in the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Ray Harryhausen made the Cyclopses have goat-style legs, so that they could be shown to say, "No, this cannot be a man in a suit because their legs can't bend that way." I almost wonder if that was a way to get away from the bipedal man in a suit look that is very common in the Heisei films, with the exception, really, of just Biolanti, Mothra, and Batra. All the others kind of stand upright, very common. So I almost wonder if that was an idea to make this thing look less uh, humanoid because of its, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, it, it, there's no reason for the Destroyer to be bipedal at this stage, considering its origin as a anaerobic organism living in the bottom of the bay. So now the, the small destroyers shoot concentrated micro oxygen, which acts like an oxygen destroyer. It actually will, it dissolves through, um, through anything that it hits. The puppets themselves, they're well designed, if a little stiff. They, they move, they move well and the scenes are cut together well. Now these are man scaled monsters, even though they're bigger than monsters, they're fighting them, uh, you know, at a one to one level. They crash through walls, they crash through the ceiling, very dynamic, very well cut together sequence here. Now, for the close quarters combat, uh, we get a, a very nice mixture. We get the full-size props, and then we get close-ups on the more articulated puppet heads. Really not that much different than what we would get for a, a giant monster. It's just the scale in which they're shot is a little bit different. Now, of course, this whole bit with the men battling these giant but not giant, I mean, they're big, but they're not big monsters, that's always going to bring me back to anything involving the Mega Neuron from the beginning of Rodan, because that, to me, was always one of the genius parts of Rodan, was introducing these, you know, giant bugs and then showing Rodan eating them. So, similar sort of playing around with the expectation of size here with the small Destoroyas. Now, when the small Destoroyas get outside, Yukari ends up being cornered and menaced by one in the police car. Now, I'm probably reading too much into this, but this sequence is a bit suggestive, as the destroyer rams itself into the car door to get at Yukari over and over. And we also get to see that the small destroyers have a xenomorph-style mouth that pops out, the secondary mouth that comes out of their main mouth. Always amused me 
that the destroyers, you know, designed to kill a Japanese movie monster icon, borrow designs from Western monsters like Predator and Alien. Go figure on that. Now, our requisite Super Mecha, the Super X3, looks a lot like a mix of the first two Super Xs, which were, of course, in Godzilla 1984 and then Godzilla vs. Biolanti, combined with the Garuda from Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla because it has little wings. Now, it does retain the stubby wedge shape of the Super Xs, so it, it's plausible as the third one in this line. Now, its weapons loadout is described as cadmium missiles and ultra-low temperature lasers. Now, ULT lasers is pure science fiction. I'm not really sure how a laser can be cold, but cadmium is a legitimate choice. Cadmium is used in nuclear control rods because as in one of its elemental properties is that it absorbs neutrons without fissioning. So it would make sense that you would use it in an anti-nuclear application here, such as with Godzilla attempting to stop the nuclear reaction inside of his body. Now, the pilot is Major Sho Karuki. Now, he was the remote pilot of Super X-2 way back in Biolanti. But in that film, he was played by Mazanobu Takashimi. Here, he is played by Mazahiro Takashimi, who is his brother. I don't know why they made this change. Uh, I guess one brother is as good as another to play this, uh, to play this role. The, the only real memorable line that Major Karuki gets is, Every time the Super X3 launches, he says, Super X3, take off, in English. Uh, this is, of course, dubbed in the dub because, you know, that's the way it goes. Now, the battle between the Super X3 and Godzilla, well laid out, but obviously in line with other such fights in this series. Although, to be fair, X3 does not get destroyed like its two predecessors because it needs to come back and play a role at the end. So, good on that. Now, the scene ends with Godzilla freezing, literally freezing. And the UNGCC declaring that, hey, the cadmium is doing its job and the worst is over. And it's like, oops, little premature there, guys. After Godzilla is frozen, we see Junior, who has now grown up quite a bit, emerge from the sea at a tourist beach. And we get the return of Bikini Girls, if only for a minute in the background. But always, always near and dear to my heart when Bikini Girls can show up on Earth Destruction Directive. Now, once the potential for Godzilla's explosion is stopped, the idea that he will instead melt down is introduced. I always thought this was kind of an interesting swerve, and in that they introduce the idea of an atomic explosion, seemingly solve that problem, but then produce a secondary problem, which is just as bad. So it's a way to have um, a bit of a ratcheting down of the tension and then ratcheting it right back up. Now, after this is introduced, the general incredulously asked, he's China syndroming? which always is an interesting line reading. And, you know, to me, it's an easy shorthand for movie viewers to invoke the China Syndrome, but anytime that film is referenced, it reinforces a lot of the falsehoods that film was responsible for spreading about nuclear power and the way that it actually works. But I'll leave it at that before I get into a rant. Now, the next big sequence here is the JSDF military rollout versus the destroyers. Now, we do get some nice hardware here. We get the Mazer tanks, and we get dedicated cold guns, which look similar to the Mazer tanks, but have a different kind of uh, uh, weapon mounted on the, the rear side of it. Now, of note in this sequence is that there are several computer-generated helicopters, which for 1995 look all right. Now, listeners to this show know that helicopters are always troublesome to do models at this scale, so CG seems an appropriate solution. Of course, I like helicopters, so I always notice when they're there. Now, the battle of the JSDS versus the small destroyers 
has a lot of smoke and missile fire, and we actually see the model shaking from the amount of pyrotechnics being set off. I don't know if that is a function of it being on DVD versus when I originally watched this on VHS taped off a laser disc. Yeah, that's how I roll. Um, but it, it, the whole sequence looks a little dated now, more in line with what you'd get for a Showa film than a Heisei one. Of course, I have to ask then, is that intentional? Was he designed here to call back a little bit to a Showa-style film with the big rows and rows of uh, weapons all firing at the monsters in the background? I don't know. Now, after taking on fire, the small destroyers combine... somehow. Luckily, for our narrative, it happens off-screen. Now, Destoroyer's combined form is a larger, nastier looking of the original, still scuttling along on crab legs, the big wide head shooting micro-oxygen, but he has finally become giant, if not giant-giant. Now, with no other options, the UNGCC makes a plan to lure Godzilla to Destoroyer in order for them to kill each other. Well, here we are, some 19 years beforehand, but let them fight! This plan uses Junior as bait for Destoroyer, which Mickey obviously strongly objects to. Mickey ends up being told by Meru, who is another UNGCC psychic, don't be sentimental. It's almost as if the idea of simple compassion for a living thing has become passe in this uh, trying time. I can see both sides of this argument, but this statement is harsh because, frankly, Junior is an innocent animal who has never hurt anyone that we have ever seen. I mean, we, we've seen pretty much his whole life cycle, and he's never attacked a city or done anything bad. So to use him as bait does seem a little cruel. Now, in the dub, they call for the evacuation of a 200-mile radius around Tokyo. Now, I broke out the Google Maps, and that would mean they would evacuate all of Honshu Island, which has a population of something north of 100 million people. Good luck with that. Where are they going to go? I don't, I don't really see that happening, frankly. I think that's just a, a ridiculous statement and really should tone it down a little bit. Now, we next see the flying form of Destoroyah, which looks more like the final form, uh, with the shape of his head being more wedgy and less wide. Uh, we also get to see the wings, obviously, which will show up in the final form. The head itself is actually quite nice. It is articulated as a puppet, and it gives a sense of life to the overall flying puppet, uh, which has sometimes been missing from the flying puppets in the Heisei films. Now, primarily, this falls at the feet of... Mothra and Batra, the flying puppets of which were not super convincing back in 92. A lot of the other flying uh, creatures have, have been better. They did a similar thing with, with Rodan in 93, where his head was articulated. And then uh, creatures like the Mechagodzilla and the Mogra being robots, you don't have to uh, autumn, you know, articulate them. They're robots, right? This goes directly into Destoroyah versus Junior, and this is Junior's first real battle, and it is a doozy. He is clearly a different animal than his father, uh, with smaller scales on his back and overall more reptilian look. But he also outright saves a civilian helicopter, which the Heisei Godzilla has never done anything remotely that heroic. But unfortunately, Junior is outmatched by Destroyer, who gets a building dropped on him and stomped into the ground. But Junior gets his licks in. He blows off a few limbs off of Destroyer with his beam and knocks him back into a large building. Now... After this, Godzilla arrives, although now somehow it is inexplicably nighttime, even though it was appeared to be the middle of the day when Junior and Destroyer were fighting. And Destroyer, again, somehow off camera, revives into his final form, which is his most well-known and 
gigantic look. If you see Destroy in a game or in a toy, typically this is the form he has. In fact, I have the Bandai vinyl of Destroy in this form. Now, Destroy attacks Junior, brutally stabs him in the heart. Ouch! That's all I can say. And that insult to injury, Destroya picks up Junior with his tail, flies up in the air, and drops him. And yeah, it does not look good for Junior to get dropped right through this building. Now what's odd here is that after the nice flying puppetry work from a little bit earlier, the final form of Destroya's wings in this scene do not flap. So the suggestion looks like he's flying telepathically like Space Godzilla does, but that's not the case. He's got these big giant bat wings, you'd think that he would flap them. So Junior is in a bad way. This leads to us getting some real tender moments. First, we get a brief scene between Mickey and Junior, but then Godzilla tries to actually revive Junior by granting him a part of his nuclear energy. He appears to be breathing out the breath of life into Junior. It doesn't really do anything, though. Needless to say, as I said, this doesn't work. And Godzilla roars out in anguish, and this is clearly meant to evoke tears of rage. Now, it's a powerful scene, especially in the context of the Heisei films, where we have literally seen Junior grow up since he hatched. We saw him as an egg. We saw him as a baby. We saw him as a little kawaii toddler. And now this. So we have a lot of history with Junior. And to see him just, uh, you know, just run over and, and, and just chewed up and spat out by Destroya is very, very, uh, it, it's emotional. I'm not going to lie. Now, with that, the final battle is on and it is suitably nasty. Now, Destroya is much bigger than Godzilla. Which is really saying something as Godzilla has continually increased in size in the Heisei films. And Destroya manhandles Godzilla for a little while, including dragging him across the ground with his tail wrapped around his neck. Destroya also breaks out his glowy horn of doom, note that's not the official name, which slices into Godzilla's shoulder with the idea, I guess, that it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like a monoblade or something, so it can cut right into him. Now, to be fair, Godzilla gives, gives as good as he gets utilizing the red spiral beam and his nuclear pulse attack. In fact, his body appears to be giving off nuclear pulses at random by this point during the fight, continuing to suggest that his internal reaction is approaching a meltdown situation, which I rather like. There is a bit in this fight where Destoroya breaks into his aggregate forms and swarms over Godzilla. Uh, they are then driven off with a nuclear pulse that knocks him off his body. Now, the visuals of this scene will get called back to a few years down the line in 2001, when the Mega Neurons swarm all over Godzilla in Godzilla x Megajirus, but it's a larger scale swarm. They're a lot smaller, and there's a lot more of them, but it always, but the first time I saw GXM, I thought, oh, they're doing like Destoroya did, which is a novel thing. Godzilla doesn't fight small swarms like that, which was one of the, you know, sadly, one of the few memorable bits of Godzilla x Megajirus, which we covered a long time ago. I want to say in like year one of Earth Destruction Directive. Now the battle reaches its climax as Godzilla heats up so much that his spines begin to melt. This is just an, an amazing and memorable visual. Part of his iconic look begins to fade in the frame. Godzilla's spines would, you know, are, are part and parcel with Godzilla and to see them, you know, kind of starting to liquefy, it's, it's, it's a little, uh, it, it's, it's shocking. Super X3 gets back into the act as well and attacks Destroya when it starts to flee from the fight, shooting it out of the sky and crashing it into the ground. Which has been used a few times in this film, dropping things from height, so why not? It makes sense. Now, it always was sort of an odd choice to me to have the Super X3 defeat Destroya and not Godzilla. 
you know, I guess my thought could be perhaps a destroyer was a product of man, so only man could stop it. Food for thought. I mean, it would have made sense to me to have Godzilla overcome the destroyer and then have, you know, his, his own final uh, reckoning, but that not the choice here. Now, the meltdown begins and things look bad for all involved as Godzilla's flesh begins to flash and melt. In Super X3, we get an instrument readout on a radiation sensor showing alpha, beta, and gamma rays literally going off the charts. It's a digital scale and they go right to the edge of the scale. Um, and then, you know, we, we see Godzilla in his, in his death throes and it's really quite hard to watch. And then a gout of orange fluid is expelled from his chest. I always assumed, and I don't have anything to back this up, that this must be his blood, which is so hot that it evaporates from the heat as soon as it's expelled out of his body. And then Godzilla's body melts away to nothing. His flesh falls off and then his bones melt down to nothing. It's extremely moving, as this is a beloved character who is dying right in front of our eyes. Now besides the simple visual craziness of this whole concept, you have to remember that the hype for this film was that Toho was done and never making another Godzilla, which lends the scene a further sense of gravitas. The king of the monsters has died. And this is just not something that, in the wake of the Showa and Heisei films, that we were really ever expecting. And it's all right there on the screen. Now, of course, that's not really the end. Now, the rad sensor that we had saw previously suddenly has all of the rad levels drop off. And we see Junior, now as big as his father, roaring in silhouette against the smoke. It's a great final scene, showing that all of the downbeat and gloomy and apocalyptic aspects of this film do not win in the end. In the end, the world is saved and Godzilla lives again. That, to me, is a, a wonderful ending. I've always loved that. And it led uh, rise to the strong rumor that the, when to the rumor was always that when Toho started back up the Godzilla series after TriStar, that it was going to star Junior. Now, this doesn't really play out because the Millennium films don't fall in the continuity of the Heisei films, but this scene made me believe it, made me a believer when I was 15, absolutely. Now, the end credits in the Japanese version feature a montage of scenes from the Showa films and set to a wonderful piece by Ifakube, which sonically references a lot of his more memorable scores. Sadly, this is missing from the dub, so I will try to cut that music in here just so we can all hear it, because it's really fantastic. Now, overall, Godzilla vs. Destoroya, it's a superlative effort in the Heisei era, certainly better than the previous two entries, Mechagodzilla and Space Godzilla. It's engaging, it's thought-provoking, and overall, it's entertaining with enough nods and easter eggs to satisfy the hardcore fans, but at the same time, enough story to keep casual viewers in the loop. It's not perfect by any stretch. There are still some, you know, plain limitations to what Kawakita and company can do with the budget and time that they have on the effects. But when it's all said and done, this is a fitting send-off to the Heisei series and the King of Monsters himself. The King is dead. Long live the King. Now, if you would like to own Godzilla vs. Destoroy, you have a few options. It is available on a Blu-ray double feature with, oddly, the aforementioned Godzilla X Megajiris. Goes for about $12 on Amazon. This is a really nice copy. I have this. Looks nice and crisp and clean. Uh, very, um, very good to watch. I want to say it has both the Japanese language and English language tracks, as is becoming common uh, on these releases. There was no changes in footage 
so we don't have any, you know, the, it's, it's just a language track that changes. Uh, the film can also be rented or bought on Prime Video or YouTube, if you prefer digital. Now, previously, there was a double-feature DVD which paired it with Space Godzilla. Uh, that is out of print, but it's still out there in the wild. It's fairly common. I've seen that one a few times. And if you want to go really old school, you can find this on VHS, although I'm not sure if I've ever actually seen a copy of this on VHS. I know I've seen copies of some of the other Heisei films on VHS, but not this one. So what do you folks think? Have you seen Godzilla vs. Destoroya? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Were you uh, as, as you know, kind of overwhelmed as I was the first time I watched it when uh, seeing uh, my, my monster hero melt down in front of my eyes? Write in and let me know. We're at Destruction Directive at uh, Yahoo.com. As I said, this film has a lot of fans and is still very, very popular to this day. So, um, you know, and, and that burning Godzilla look is still an iconic classic look for Godzilla. So please write in. Tell me what you think. I'd like to hear from you. We can talk about it here on the show. All right. I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Director. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 24 was published by the Marvel Comics Group. It was cover dated July 1979 and was released on or about April 17th, 1979. As always, this information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com or Mike's Amazing World.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey and it shows... Our titular monster hero literally walking off into the sunset as uh, uh, we see Godzilla walking away from the reader. His spine's pointed towards us as we see a sunset uh, in the background and uh, various cars and other uh, rubble strewn on the streets as he walks away from us as we get here into our grand finale of uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler, Herb Trimpey, inker, is Daniel Green. Uh, letterer and colorist is credited to James Novak, and our editor is Al Milgram, and the title is, And Lo, A Child Shall Lead Them, and as always, our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. Godzilla makes one final attack on New York City, targeting the Empire State Building, with the combined forces of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla Squad, the Fantastic Four, and the Avengers is the only being standing in the monster's way. After a battle which shows both sides to be equally matched, it takes the tear-filled pleas of young Rob Takaguchi 
to convince Godzilla to stop his rampage and return to the ocean. The monster, apparently understanding the boy, leaves the city, but not before Spider-Man takes a few pictures of the monster as he leaves. Well, folks, this is it. This is, as I said, the big finale to the two years of Godzilla stomping his way through the Marvel Universe. A lot of questions. How did it wrap things up? Was it worth the wait? Did it satisfy all and answer all the questions? Well, let's get right into the notes. As I said, the cover is literally Godzilla walking into the sunset. Do you get more on the nose than that? <laughs> Our hero walking off into the sunset on the uh, cover of his last issue. Now, uh, that said, it is a great cover. It's got a great use of very harsh light and shadow. Um, very striking bright yellow and orange beams of sunlight. And then Godzilla is mostly in shadow because the light source is in front of him. So uh, we see him mostly uh, filled in with black ink with just some green along the edges peeking out here and there. It's very dramatic cover. Uh, ironically, a kind of a reverse silhouette. So kind of the reverse is what we got in the film uh, this time out with uh, Junior emerging in the silhouette here. It's kind of a, a, a reverse silhouette. Uh, there also is lots of teeny tiny New Yorkers uh, to show scale, and uh, Trimpy definitely sticks the landing here on this cover using elements that have been common to all of his Godzilla covers, including the use of size and scale and the use of small figures in the foreground to show the size of Godzilla. I do really like this cover. It is a... Uh, I don't know that it's it's as iconic as some of the as, as some of the ones like with Red Ronin and Yetrigar, or perhaps the first one, but it's very striking and very fitting cover for the final issue. Uh, page one has Godzilla rising up out of the harbor and roaring at the assembled heroes in our splash page. It's not uh, overly dynamic. Um, it's, you know, Thor's coming in for a landing, but otherwise everyone is, a, and, and I'm sorry, the human torch is flying, but everyone else is either standing or sitting. Uh, but that said, I do like how the various hero heroic forces are arranged. Because we're going, you know, they're all around him. So we got the behemoth on the left. We've got a few heroes in the foreground, including Iron Man, the Vision. And then in the extreme foreground, we've got Thor and Reed Richards. And then uh, uh, and then the Fantastic Car and Johnny Storm are coming in from the right. So uh, they're doing a good job of showing just the, the number of people involved and their positions. And that their things are going on all over. This is not necessarily a head-to-head -head confrontation at this point. Over on uh, page three, panel two, uh, it's Godzilla heads for the Empire State Building. The various heroes all swarm around him. Uh, we've got the Human Torch, Iron Man, the Vision, and the Fantastic are all attacking from different angles. This panel is about two-thirds the height of the page and about a third of the width, so it's kind of a tall and uh, narrow panel, but it shows all the different attacks coming on around him. We've got Godzilla shooting atomic breath. Uh, trying to uh, to get the heroes away from him. They make a point, Iron Man makes a point, they're only slowing him down temporarily. And you've got some of the most powerful beings on Earth here. They can do very little to Godzilla, which I really like. We turn over now, after a couple of ads, to page six. Panels one through three, the Human Torch tries to use his flames against Godzilla, but gets blasted right in the flank with atomic breath. Now, I've already talked about this, not only in the last issue, but previously in this series, so I won't harp on it. But suffice to say, Johnny Storm has a painful death waiting for him. Nuff said. Turning now to page seven, we cut to the interior of the behemoth with the Godzilla squad and uh, all of our scientific experts. Uh, Rob Takaguchi is back, and once again, Dum Dum Duggan throws him off the bridge. I have to ask the question, why was Rob not locked in his quarters or 
placed under guard when he was thrown off the bridge the last time. Uh, I suppose you could say, well, S.H.I.E.L.D. has other things to worry about at the moment, Luke. Maybe they're not going to spare somebody to necessarily go babysit Rob Takaguchi. And I can understand that, but I don't know. It seems to me that they could have at least, uh, you know, put somebody down, an agent down there to sit with him or, or whatever, just to keep him off the bridge, because having him on the bridge is a, a bit of a security concern here. Uh, down at the bottom of the page, um, panels, uh, let's see, five and six, or excuse me, four and five. No, five and six. I was right the first time. Um, we see Godzilla uh, unleashing a blast of atomic breath on a building and people uh, running and screaming is uh, in, in terror. Now, this is a nice scene because this leads over to uh, page 10, whereas that rubble is falling, Thor and Iron Man get involved by getting some civilians out of the way. Uh, Thor creates a whirlwind with his hammer that blows the rubble away, and then Iron Man swoops in and grabs some people trapped on the ledge of a building that is on fire and flies them off to safety. So I do like seeing Thor and Iron Man getting saving the civilians. Uh, and as an aside, that particular group of comics Twitter fans are satiated. Moving on. We turn over to page 11, panels 1 through 3, and J. Jonah Jameson, despite literally staring death in the face last issue, not figuratively, but literally, is right back at his desk demanding to know where Peter Parker is because this story requires, quote, spectacular shots. I'll grant him this for all of his quirks and flaws. This man is a pro in time of a crisis, J. Jonah Jameson, right there at his desk demanding the best coverage of this whole incident with Godzilla in Manhattan. Uh, Robbie Robertson has, uh, just, you know, says, well, I did leave a message for Parker with his girlfriend. I guess his girlfriend at this point is, uh, Mary Jane, I guess. I'm not sure. Is, I guess this is after the death of Gwen Stacy, so it must be Mary Jane Watson, right? I'm sure a, a better connected spider fan will know the answer to this. Bottom of page 11, we get a reverse L-shaped panel, which is kind of an odd choice until you realize that what is being shown in the panel is Godzilla walking up to the base of the Empire State Building. And he comes about, I'd say, I don't know, about 40% up the height of the Empire State Building as Thor flies in from the left. So, uh, you know, you're going to put Godzilla in New York. As Americans, we tend to love King Kong and King Kong, the Empire State Building, right? So this makes sense. Uh, I do like seeing this, the nice scale, because you think about Kong was small climbing up it. And here we got Godzilla standing next to it. So, uh, and then you see a little bit of behemoth kind of... Uh, uh, poking in through the side and uh, we get a little bit of line of dialogue here where Gabe says dum dum that was the police on the radio they've hardly begun to evacuate the building and all dum dum can say is oh brother <laughs> uh, we turn over now to pages 14 and 15 this shows Godzilla and Thor in a test of strength over the Empire State Building Godzilla is pushing on one side Thor is pushing on the other side and the Empire State Building is caught in the middle there's a really nice panel on page 14 where Thor is actually sweating from the exertion, which really puts over Godzilla's massive strength. And I mean, we we're used to in Marvel comics, Thor being put over is really strong, but I don't know that in all my readings of Avengers, I've never really read much Thor solo stuff, but in when I've seen Thor in the Avengers, I've never really recall him sweating from the exertion of strength here. And I mean, it's him and Godzilla literally just pushing back and forth. Now, oddly, uh, page 14, panel one, has Godzilla interrupting some potential office scandal between Miss Jones and Mr. Jarvis, where I guess Mr. Jarvis is expecting a little hanky-panky with his dictation, 
Now, luckily, we don't see all this play out. Um, I don't think this joke would fly in 2019, but here in uh, 1979, I guess it's okay, uh, if a bit uh, a bit tasteless. Now, this leads us directly into pages 16 and 17, which is a double-page splash. This is the biggest piece of art in the series, and by far the grandest when you say Godzilla in the Marvel Universe. Now, our heroes are blitzing Godzilla from all sides, as he is still attempting to topple over the Empire State Building, spewing atomic breath forward as he does. I mean, Behemoth just hits him with a broadside of, of three blasts from its uh, weapons battery. The Vision phases through one of his spines, attempting to hurt him. A Human Torch and Iron Man blast him from the air from different directions. Uh, the ever-loving Blue-Eyed Thing gets into the action, shooting Godzilla with a blaster from the Fantastic Car. And Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, is actually wrapping Godzilla's head in a force shield. Whew! If you ever doubted the validity of Godzilla in the Marvel Universe, this splash page will cure you of that doubt. This is an amazing piece of Herb Trimpey, not just monster art, but monsters versus superheroes art. It's it's wonderful. This is suitable for framing if I didn't want to destroy my comic. And in a nice touch, it's pages 16 and 17. It's dead center in the middle. So it's right there on the, on. Uh, it's one sheet because it's right there. The staples are there. So there's no break or anything by doing it across, doing a, a splash across two different sheets that are sitting next to each other. If I'm, if I'm explaining myself, this is the dead center of the book. So if you, if I ever get a beater copy of this, I can take it apart and take this out and frame it. So I don't know if I ever see a beater copy, but Hey, you never know. Go to a lot of comic shows. Turning over to page 19, panel 2, Gabe Jones decorated Howling Commando of World War II, an elite-level S.H.I.E.L.D. special agent, thwarted by Rob Takaguchi, kicking him in the shit. No, really, that's what happens. And his response of, ow, is at the same time both ridiculous and utterly human and awesome. I, I mean, there's something to be said. You get kicked in the shins, that hurts. I don't, I don't care who you are. That's, that's why, you know... That's why it's, it's a trope. It's a trope for a reason, right? Um, let's see. You got a couple more ads here. Turning over to pages 22 and 23. This kind of brings, uh, starts our climax here of our finale. Uh, Rob Takaguchi pleads with Godzilla from out on, uh, the behemoth has set down. So Rob has run out onto the roof of a building where behemoth has set down and Rob's pleading with Godzilla to trust him and that he apologizes for being the one involved in getting him shrunk and brought here. But he asked him to please just leave the city. Now, things get a little sappy in this sequence, but, you know, really, given Rob Takaguchi's presence in the entire series, there's really no doubt that he had to play into the finale in a big way. Mench has used this character as the sympathetic uh, ear and sympathetic voice of opinion towards Godzilla from the beginning, so it would make less sense for him not to be involved. As a fan, I think I'd like it better if he wasn't, but at the same time, I can respect that's the story that Mensch was telling, and it's a story about compassion. You know, we talked about this a little bit in the Godzilla vs. Destoroyah um, coverage, is that compassion is not passe. Compassion and and feeling, um, you know, kindly towards uh, an, an innocent creature that doesn't know any better is not something that should be so easily dismissed. Um now, I have, during our coverage of the series, complained when Godzilla be behaves in a way that's contrary to his persona from the Showa films, and 
To be honest, this is right square in the middle of that sort of behavior. But as I said, this is how Doug Mensch approached this version of Godzilla. And that is consistent with, with his characterization. So I can't fault it too much. Now on page uh, 23, panel three, Godzilla actually picks up Rob and then holds him in his palm. And at this point, we're moving beyond God Showa Godzilla squarely into Showa Gamera territory with friend to all children here. There never really been much of a characterization for Godzilla outside of this book. But again, that's how Mensch is playing it. I have to take this on its own terms. This version of Godzilla behaves in that way. Over now onto page 26, Godzilla actually listens to Rob and leaves the city. And this is interesting because S.H.I.E.L.D. and the heroes follow at kind of a safe distance. They're, they're willing to let this try and play out. Going brute, stro- brute strength against brute strength with Godzilla has not really worked. So trying a different method. Uh, panel 4 has a nice silhouette, actually, of... Uh, we get to see kind of a yellow and orange sky in the background. We see Godzilla and Behemoth and the New York City skyline all in silhouette as he walks towards the harbor. Very artsy sort of panel. And, um, you know, obviously Dan Green got his, his work cut out from there with the inking. Now we bring us over into page 27, panel one. We actually see Godzilla stepping. I can barely read. It looks like Pier 32. He is stepping out into the harbor. And you see he's got one leg on the ground and one leg in the water. And we can't see who it is that is, uh, I'm assuming it's Rob on the top of Behemoth, but I don't know that for a fact. Actually, it's goodbye, Godzilla, goodbye. Although, I guess later Rob is not on Behemoth, so I'm guessing it must be Gabe Jones saying this. Uh, this also leads to perhaps the single most gratuitous Spider-Man cameo ever in a comic, as he shows up for three panels, takes pictures, and leaves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a Marvel book. You had to get Spider-Man in there somehow. But this is, I mean, it's almost as if, uh, you know, uh, editorial said, you got to include Spider-Man, man, you know, Doug. And Doug's like, oh, okay, I'll put him in there. <laughs> so uh, we now turn over to page 30, which is the final page of the book. Panels one through four, Godzilla walks away in the harbor, getting lower and lower down with the water in a series of repeated panels. Um, and then... I'm just going to read you the final page because it's, uh, I, I think it kind of speaks for itself. One final roar in farewell and Godzilla disappears from you. Rob Takaguchi says, there, are you satisfied? You can all go home now. Godzilla's gone. Godzilla's gone for good. Indeed. But there will be no harsh words for this young Rob Takaguchi this night. And he will not be alone. After all, he has led them. Fiend. So, you know, again, as a, as a way to end the series, you can't defeat Godzilla. I mean, that, that's not feasible. It was a little suspect earlier on when they managed to subdue him and lock and, and, and trap him on Behemoth. But you can't kill Godzilla off, not in a, in a licensed comic in the 70s. That's certainly not going to happen. And here, you know, the, the might of the heroes doesn't overcome him either. He chooses to leave, basically given his own volition. So Godzilla kind of ends this conflict on his own term, which I think is is a real nice touch, to be honest. I, I kind of like this ending. It's It just says, Fiend, Godzilla's gone. He's free to come back if uh, perhaps they worked out a licensing deal and they restarted the book, but obviously that never happened. Although, of course, we will talk about Godzilla going forward a little bit, but more on that in a few minutes. So um, that's it. That's the end. And as I said, it says fiend right at the end with a period to let us know that this is, in fact, the end of the story. Now, overall, 
I think this issue did a really solid job of wrapping up not only the back half of the series, which has been dominated, excuse me, by the New York adventure, but also the series as a whole. You know, Rob Takaguchi has proven right that Godzilla needed to be left alone, and the mission of the Godzilla Squad comes to a close. With Godzilla gone, there's no reason for the Godzilla Squad to, uh, you know, stay together anymore. Now, in, in a real world term, obviously they would probably stay together for a few months and be on reserve just in case they ever, he ever did reappear, but with Godzilla uh, seemingly not ready to come back, I'm sure they'll, Dum Dum and Gabe and all them will be reassigned to different posts inside S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, there was good action in this issue, a lot of good action with the heroes trying to stop Godzilla. Ultimately, they're no match for the King of the Monsters, and it takes outside-of-the-box thinking, which is to say, you know, not just punching, to end the threat, which, that that's a very, you know, you don't always get that in the Bronze Age. I mean, I, I, I say that, I mean, you do get it, but I, I like that this book, which had the potential just to be a big smash-up mash-up to end it, you know, took the time to have a thoughtful conclusion and a thoughtful way uh, to get rid of Godzilla rather just uh, than the, the heroes just overpowering him. So, all in all, a very satisfying conclusion. Now, uh, the Bullpen Bulletin's page in Stan's Soapbox, uh, Stan Lee hypes Marvel Fun and Games, the uh, puzzles and games uh, books that they put out. Now, I think my brother Jason and I had the big collected edition of it, uh, which was like an oversized... I guess you'd call it a trade paperback, but it was oversized. It was like an activity book size, but it had to be at least two inches thick. It had a big white cover with the Hulk holding up stuff and all the heroes on the front. I've got that somewhere in my house. I need to check that down. Now, in the Boltons themselves, we get notes about Conan reaching number 100. Uh, editor of this book, Al Milgram, marries his sweetie, Judy Lewin. And Patty Cockrum, who worked in production, was recovering from minor wounds accidentally inflicted by her pet Burmese python named, of all things, Dum Dum Duggan, after, quote, a two-spirited play session. Uh, Patty, of course, is the widow, now widow, of comics great Dave Cockrum, who was also involved in Marvel a lot at this time. So, just strange. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that we just don't get that <laughs> anymore uh, from the comics industry. If we do, we get it on their Twitter. We don't get it inside the books like that. So, I hope uh, Patty wasn't too uncomfortable during her recovery. Uh, the Godzillagrams features a trio of letters, uh, mostly positive, the most interesting of which is one from Mike Esselone of Salisbury, Maryland, who reviews the first 15 issues of the series. He gives like a one to two sentence review of all 15 issues. Then, oddly enough, the sign-off at the end says, uh, we've got to get back to work, so so long and be good. And then it has the Shogun Warriors house ad, a small version of that. But again... No mention whatsoever that this was the final issue, which I just, uh, I find that really strange. I mean, in the story, it says fiend, but there's no editorial material or anything to say, this is the final issue. Thanks for reading or anything like that. So that just strikes me as odd. It really does. Real quick, just flipping through for ads. Uh, we get the Battlestar Galactica t-shirts on the inside front cover. Uh, I do like that one. Uh, I do think it's, uh, we've got an ad here for Fruit Stripe Gum. I didn't think they made anymore, but my wife actually found some of that, and that was something that uh, my kids got in their Christmas stockings, was a little pack of fruit-striped gum. Uh, the Pete Rose batting practice tee with the ball on the stretchy uh, bungee cord. We've seen that a few times. Um, we get the Star Wars action figures with the, uh, where is it, Hans Solo. I think we've all seen that one from Heroes World, right? I think it's Heroes World. Yep, Hero, Hero World, excuse me. Um, let's see, uh, there's, 
Well, we get a, a house ad for the Micronauts meet the man thing. I've never quite gotten into the Micronauts. I'm a little, it's a little before my time, I think, you know. Um, we get, um, the Bayer candies, which is Mala cup, peanut butter cup, and smoothie. Again, before my time on these. Uh, we get the, the full page ad for Kryptonite Rocks, which I always love seeing in the pages of Marvel Comics. It's like, uh, if you're reading Marvel, you must want to get rid of Superman, so you want to get some Kryptonite, I guess, right? I'm sure about that. Um, uh, Daisy, 840, uh, BB gun on the back. And then we do have a Hostess ad, which I think we've done this one. Hostess presents the thing and the ultimate weapon. This is the thing fighting Torgo. And I'm almost certain that we've covered this one. So I'm not going to, not going to do a dramatic reading of this, but I, I, you know, if any, if any Marvel hero is going to have a stash of fruit pies, I think it's probably going to be Ben Grimm, right? You know, <laughs> oh, Alicia, you want a fruit pie or something? Uh, what a revolting development this is. So, and he fights Torgo, the robot, which is, I did not realize apparently it was an actual robot character from the Fantastic Four. So that, that's just strange all around. So, um, as for the entire series of Marvel Godzilla, while it's never going to be considered one of the, uh, you know, crucial Godzilla stories or a, you know, essential Marvel comic, I really think that Doug Mensch, Herb Trimpey, and all the other creative forces on this book turned out a solid, routinely entertaining and imaginative series which holds up pretty well some 40 years after its publication. It's very much a lighter book compared to some of its Bronze Age line mates, as we saw Marvel moving from the Silver Age sensibilities into the Bronze Age. But the book did not treat its subject matter, nor its audience with contempt, but instead with respect. And I'm very glad that we covered this series and that it gave me the opportunity to read this series from the start and look at it critically. I'm very glad to have that opportunity and uh, I, I very much enjoyed this series and have very fond memories of it. So what did you guys think? What did you think about this finale? What did you think about Marvel Godzilla in general? We've had a lot of good discussion back and forth uh, over the last few years talking about this series, and uh, I'd like to have one more opportunity to talk about it before we move on. So please write in, or Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We'll talk about it. Now, as always, uh, this issue is collected in Essential Godzilla, if you can find that. Now, we are not done with Marvel Comics, though, folks. Next episode, we will begin a series of follow-ups where we get caught up with where some of the stars of this very comic end up. Now, we're going to be working through Godzilla character appearances chronologically. So what I've done is I've gone on to ComicsDB uh, Comics and a few other sources and found later appearances of characters introduced in this series. So what that means is that we will first be taking a look at the next appearance of Red Ronin, which will be in the pages of Avengers number 197 so we will cover that next time so if you want to read ahead or get pre-feedback any of that stuff just wanted to give you guys a heads up all right like i said please send in any feedback you have about godzilla the series i'd love to talk about it with you here on the show as for me i'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to finish things up here on earth destruction director Cheap comic books, right? 
Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time for my favorite portion of the show, listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook and Twitter, and all that information for contact is in the outro to the show. So let's get right into it. Our email today comes from good friend of the show and loyal listener, Mr. Jack Bond. And Jack writes, I will not Google for Godzilla chess set. And I've got something to mention about that uh, at the end. Now, Jack writes, interesting program on the card games. I took the precaution of turning my MP3 player from 120% down to normal speed. But your explanation of the rules seemed lucid. I always aim to be lucid, Jack. And I think I have a clear idea of what to expect from each game. Christmas is coming, uh, just for reference, this was written back uh, before Christmas. And my brother's kids range from 8 plus to 14 minus. Okay. I wonder if I could inflict RAR on them. It's not pocket monsters. For me, even in my most active gaming days, I mostly just bought source books for the technical information. Um, yeah, 8 to 14, I think, could handle RAR. It does require some counting um, because you've got to, you know, tally up the, the bids. But nothing bad. And as I said, if you have a piece of scratch paper, that should be math they can certainly handle. Even And the younger side maybe might need a little help or maybe a calculator would handle that. RAR is a fun game just because of the crazy art. And the fact that you're supposed to roar out your monster and stuff. So I uh, let me know. Let me know if, if you got it for him because I'd love to hear it. I mean, Rar, unfortunately, seems fairly obscure. I mean, I'm, I found it because of Kickstarter, like I said. So I'd love to see some other copies of it out in the wild. Speaking of technical information, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe nails down such things as the location of the Baxter building. Well, not too nailed down. Comic book printing is not quite up to Rand McNally standards. So the map of Manhattan in the same issue as the map of Man-Thing's Swamp to the, then the campus of the Massachusetts Academy, a competitor to Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. Don't the Hellions come from the Massachusetts Academy? Uh, I don't, I'm not really up on, on my X-Men, but uh, anyway. Uh, puts the Baxter Building somewhere between 3rd Avenue or Lexington Avenue. Cross streets are scarce, but it's between 42nd Street and 57th, closer to the latter. That puts it north and east of where 42nd Street meets Broadway. So the panel if correct, is... Oh, let me try that again. So the panel is correct. If it's looking towards the north, you'd have to tell me if the statue and the tall building are recognizable landmarks. I didn't I didn't recognize them uh, immediately, but that doesn't mean that they're not. I'm, some of the minutiae like that in, in Manhattan is, is beyond me. Uh, if we're facing this some other way, then Reed has circled the square with his arms, probably to get the time platform its optimal orientation, because he's not going to set it down and have to reposition it. Hey, just as close as Times Square is the southwest corner, southeast corner of Central Park, a large building-free area. 
Well, it is a time machine. The only place to put it would be Times Square. Perhaps if Doom had labeled it as a central platform, lead would have go the other way. Times Square, time platform. I get you. I see what you did there, Jack. You clever devil, you. Godzilla in the middle of Manhattan. This being Marvel, I have to ask, what if? What if the license had only run a year? Would we have missed out on this? I'd like to think Mench had a showdown in Superhero Central plan for his endgame. Remember issue 8, like number 17, had Godzilla loaded onto the behemoth. If that's the decision point, he could have been flown to New York back then. Jack, you are right on the money. I, I in, in retrospect, looking back at the series, I thought the same thing. That they capture him twice. And that it, it's, it's setting up. It's like, okay, because the, the license was only going to run year by year. So they were setting it up that maybe if we have to end this by 12, and they ended up not having to do that. Alternatively, if they had swung a third year, Godzilla could have done his unshrinking in New Orleans or St. Louis or Chicago and stomped across the Midwest until number 28 and the third annual Great Godzilla Roundup. Hey, ROM was taking place in Clareton, West Virginia. What if the Big G had wanted him there for a, quote, licenses won't allow a crossover crossover? An issue of Godzilla where the Space Knight doesn't quite appear? An issue of ROM, where the characters are pinned down and can't deal with the King of the Monsters. I'd buy it. ROM versus Godzilla, I'd buy it. ROM would just walk up to him and try to shoot him, I bet. I mean, that's how ROM rolls, man. Jack continues, I was debating whether to write about Tokyo SOS this late, but your commentary took the trouble to make sure I noticed how totally awesome the character of Yoshido was, so I guess you won't mind hearing my thoughts on it, and also on Godzilla x Godzilla, because they are basically the same movie. It's like that guy we all dread getting into a conversation with because he says, wait, there's one point I forgot to make. Let me start over. It's like talking to a five-year-old. I know from experience. Interesting that you see an anime influence in the storytelling. Looking at the Kiru Mechagodzilla, I saw a step toward anime mecha of the real robot variety. Finger missiles are one thing. Shoulder-mounted rocket launchers are something else. And like Gundam Wing, it needs a carrier. The White Herons are cool, part fighter jet, part cargo plane, probably of a size between the two, and despite a design aesthetic that looks like a semi-trailer, maneuverable might be di- the directed thrust that allows VTOL. Harrier jump jets were the same way. Yeah, I assume that they, they're supposed to work similar to, to Harriers. I've, you know, VTOLs are always useful in a, a fantastical setting because you don't need a runway. You, you can take them off out of a, a, a bunker or out, uh, you can land them in the middle of a city. You can take them off. So I, I think that's one of the reasons. Plus they just look neat. It makes, you know, the VTOLs are so relatively uncommon to compared to other more traditional types of jet aircraft that it, it does make for a good look. And I agree. It, it definitely has a real robot sensibility to it. Um, you know, the, the, especially say the, the rockets and stuff on the shoulder and just the storytelling in general always reminded me more of a, a real robot, uh, type of story, especially Godzilla X Mech Godzilla right at the beginning with the tragic backstory and all that, that, that really kind of earmarked it towards that real robot, um, um, manga or, or anime genre for me. Jack continues, Kamiobis was a surprise. I was looking at it, thinking it was a nice design when they said the name, and I grabbed the DVD case to check, and there was its badge right on the back. As an aside, I like the term badges. It puts me in the mind of a monster spotting association where we all have a sash with badges for each monster we can identify. Although I've seen Space Amoeba and Dogura, I guess I wasn't ready to try for my Kamiobis badge. Do you know if, if this Kamiobis was more of a sculpture, or did they build it as a suit in case the producers and director changed their mind and wanted some stomping from it? Uh, I believe this is, um, this, this was more like a statue. I, I, I don't, 
I'm not sure what size it was. I'm assuming it was like normal suit size and then put miniatures around it, but I don't think it was ever designed to be worn. Um, now, as I said in the show, originally the, the story goes that the script called for that to be Angurus, who was washed up dead on the beach, and that was not allowed. They were not going to, you know, treat such a popular monster, a fan-favorite monster that way, so they did Cameobus, who's a bit more, uh, a lot more obscure. Well, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it, how obscure Japanese giant monsters are. Um, so, yeah, I don't believe there was ever any intention or part of the story for there to be an additional monster besides Godzilla, Kiru, and Mothra. Yeah, I mean, there's already two for different forms of Mothra, so I've, I've never seen anything like that. It would be interesting to see, bring back Kamiobus, because he is not, I mean, his main power is that his neck can extend out. You know, he's like a snapping turtle, so he's not really much of a match for any of the other monsters here. But, you know, that's, I was, that's the thing I like about these two films. They do bring back certain Showa aspects without focusing on them, but they bring them back and, you know, as a little nod to the past. Uh, Jack uh, continues, it might just be that I hadn't seen some Godzilla for a while, but director Masaki Tezuka seemed to be making the special effects more immersive. It started in GXMG when the man coming out of the store dropped his groceries and we got a sidewalk level view of a Mazer tank rumbling down our street. Then in Tokyo SOS, when Godzilla comes into town and the camera it, town, the camera is by the shaking telephone poles looking at the underside of the highway overpass he smashes through before the helicopter shot of the city. I enjoyed both movies, but I wouldn't make a double feature of them signed Jack. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, the the effects are, for the most part, quite good, and they do take some different angles and stuff. That was one of the things I thought the Millennium films, while as a general rule, are fairly uneven. I thought they did a good job because there was different creative forces involved in them. They're not very samey, obviously, except uh, MG and Tokyo SOS, which had the same production crew. So they take different risks and they take different approaches to shooting different scenes so i think that's actually a really insightful comment and i and i, I think it's dead on now because they are able to take um you know they, they have different point of view to how they're shooting a different scene so it doesn't look uh the setups are not the same like we got sometimes in the heisei films where a similar setup from one film to the next might be shot in a very similar manner uh, Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Always appreciate it. As I said, you can write into Earth Destruction Directive at EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. Now, uh, Jack said, I will not Google for a Godzilla chess set. I want to give a shout out to my dad, Mr. Al Giaconetti. Uh, for Christmas, he got me a Godzilla chess set. And what's even cool about this is that this is not an off-the-shelf Godzilla chess set. This is a chess set that somebody made, and it is... Um, made of little Gashapon super deformed monsters. We have a full set of, uh, the king and queen, the bishops, the rooks, and the knights for, of monsters for the heroic side and for the evil side. And then on the heroic side, the pawns are tanks and the pawns for the evil side are UFOs. And it, it is a wonderful, wonderful set. I have not had an opportunity to set it up. I just don't have any, any room to set up a chess set at the moment, but it's fantastic. I can't wait to get this set up on display. Very, very cool. And big, and big thanks to my dad for, uh, for that. A wonderful Godzilla chess set gift. And as my kids are starting to get into playing chess, they, they really want to play with this set. So you never know that, that might happen in the near future. Speaking of the near future, now is our opportunity to look forward. What is coming next? 
on Earth Destruction Directive after this big blowout with two finales. Well, we are going to be jumping from the Heisei era back into the Showa era, and we're taking our next Showa film, which is Destroy All Monsters from 1968. So we're keeping the epic thing going on, but going epic in a slightly different way. Very much looking forward to watching this classic mashup of uh, you know the big blowout with all the monsters. And in our continuing coverage of the Godzilla characters in Marvel Comics, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 197, which features, in some small way, the Red Ronin, who we had not seen in a little bit since the Mega Monsters showdown when he got decapitated. So we're interested to see how that works. Now, if I understand correctly, Red Ronin doesn't play much of a part in this issue, but it does set up his appearances in the next ones. So we'll be covering that. We'll, of course, have any news or updates on Godzilla King of the Monsters, Pacific Rim Netflix series, anything related to giant monsters coming down the pike. We'll also have all of your feedback, which, of course, we always love to hear. So if you, again, if you want to be part of the show, you can please uh, send feedback in, hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, and we'll get you here on the show. All right, so that's all I've got here. I just want to take this opportunity to say, remember, everyone is welcome at the Earth Destruction Directive. This show is for everybody. So all are welcome here. And until next time, keep them stopping. Godzilla's final fight will be a memorable one. May Lee reports. He needs no introduction. His glaring eyes and gnashing teeth, not to mention his habit of destroying everything in sight, has made this overgrown lizard a superstar. But in his 22nd film, Godzilla vs. the Destroyer, to be released December 9th in Japan, the 42-year-old monster will finally meet his end. Godzilla will die. The film's directors promise the final scene will be unforgettable. Godzilla died once before in the first movie in 1954, so this last film incorporates the image of his first death. This was the cause of Godzilla's first demise four decades ago, the Destroyer, a weapon that zaps oxygen. Remember, Godzilla is a nuclear monster. Now, in this final installment, the Destroyer will be to blame again. But this time, it will come to life in the form of an indestructible monster. Destroyer appears only in the first and last Godzilla movies. So, in a way, the last film is the continuation of the first. Special effects director Koichi Kawakita painstakingly guided his team of designers and technicians to create the sci-fi world of Godzilla one last time. Although technological advances such as computers and robots have given the films more realism over the years, the simple monster suit hasn't been outgrown. All it takes are the right moves and a few visual and audio enhancements, and presto, Godzilla is out flattening entire cities once again. And this time, Hong Kong, along with Tokyo, falls victim to his violent temper. Bringing the Godzilla series full circle involved using the same human characters as well as the famous creatures. Momoko Kochi starred in the first film and plays the same character in the last one. After the first Godzilla movie, people pointed at me saying, Godzilla, Godzilla. As a young woman, I hated being called Godzilla. So I thought, no more Godzilla for me. But 41 years later, I watched the film again and realized how great it was for its anti-nuclear theme. 
And that's the theme found in this final chapter of the Godzilla series. In this last movie, I want people to look at the death of Godzilla, knowing that he was created by nuclear power in the most selfish existence in the world, mankind. With that strong anti-nuclear message, Godzilla will bid farewell to the silver screen here in Japan. But don't be surprised if he shows up in the Western world sometime soon. In fact, TriStar, the U.S. film company, has bought the rights to make one Godzilla movie, which is expected to come out sometime in 1997. Japanese creators have no qualms about the deal. Personally, I'm looking forward to seeing Godzilla in the U.S. I'm a Godzilla fan, so I want to see the American Godzilla movie. And why not? It's about high time that the ferocious fire-breathing beast picks on someone else for a while. Haley, CNN, Tokyo. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.